Hello goblins and ghouls and welcome to my Haunted Life podcast, the podcast all about the paranormal history behind some of your favorite ghost stories and legends. I'm your host, Angela Hartshorn. Good morning, goblins and ghouls. How is everyone feeling today? I hope you are happy and wonderful and whatever you do for Valentine's Day coming up this Monday, reminder, I hope you feel loved and appreciated because you deserve it. This month we are continuing on with the romantic stories and this week it it's a very sweet loving story it's not horrific i mean it kind of is if you look into the history of women's rights but you know anyways on this week's episode we are talking about the white lady of chanham manor in virginia it's a short sweet story unfortunately with not a whole lot of documentation but it's a good story chatham manor has seen a lot of horror with slavery a slave rebellion and the civil war even being used as a battlefield hospital but the story of the white lady has endured and is the most popular ghost story associated with Chatham. So, let's get into it, shall we? Grab yourself a cup of tea, make sure the doors are locked and the sage is close by. I have a story to tell you. They say true love never dies, and that is the case with the Lady in White at Chatham Hall. Chatham Hall has had a very dark history, being the site of a slave rebellion that ended in execution and serving as a Confederate hospital during the Civil War. It is documented that 130 men died in the home during this time. But even with all that trauma and darkness, the ghost that is most popular is the Lady in White. The Lady in White is said to wander along a path leading to the Rappahockett River, searching for her soulmate. This path has become known as the Ghost Path, since sightings of her ha- there were first reported on the day she died. June 21st, 1790, as a specter wandering her lonesome path waiting for her lover to return, and is rumored to return every seven years on the anniversary of her death. Over two centuries old, the manor is a historic site visited by thousands of tourists each year. It has been visited by numerous U.S. residents. It is located at 120 Chatham Lane in Fredericksburg, Virginia. 
you know anything about the U.S. Civil War, Fredericksburg was, it was bad. I'm going to get into that, though. Chatham Manor was built by William Fitzhugh in 1771, using enslaved laborers and craftsmen. It was named for his schoolmate and good friend William Pitt, Earl of Chatham. I think that's pretty nice. I wouldn't think to name my fancy house after any of my friends, so maybe that's a whole nother love story right there. The large Georgian structure location atop Stafford Hill Heights and its visibility from Fredericksburg puts Fitzhugh's wealth and status on display for everyone around. It was constructed upon a 1,200-acre tobacco plantation. You know where they're making their money. In addition to owning hundreds of thousands of acres and at least 100 enslaved people, the main building of the manor had 10 rooms, five of which have been restored and are now open to the public. Other buildings included a dairy, barn, stables, and ice house, a mill, orchard, plus a fishery was just a little bit down by the river. The plantation even had its own racetrack where Fitzy would pit his horses against other plantation owners' horses in the surrounding area. You know, rich guy stuff. Over the years, Chanham Manor has been rumored to have been visited by a number of U.S. presidents, including George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Monroe. Washington actually visited on several occasions, as noted in his own personal written diaries. George Washington lived only a few hundred yards away. Washington and Fitzhugh were friends, and Molly Fitzhugh, William's daughter, married George Washington Park Cuttis, Washington's step-grandson. That's complicated. Their daughter, Mary, married Robert E. Lee. There are many tales that Lee courted Mary at Chatham, but the Park Service says that there is no evidence to support that claim. Fitzhugh was known to throw extravagant parties for his guests. He believed himself to be quite the entertainer and even provided a fresh caviar for his guests. During this time, a young lady came to visit. It was not by her request or desire, but rather by her father's insistence. Back in her home of England, the girl had fallen deeply in love with a gentleman her father thought was too far below her class. He was a dry salter, and she came from quite a wealthy family. I had to look up exactly what a dry salter was. According to Wikipedia, dry salters were dealers in a range of chemical products. 
including glue, varnish, dye, and colorings. They might supply salt or chemicals for preserving food and sometimes sold pickles, dry meat, or related items. The name dry salter or dry hyphen salter was in use in the United Kingdom by the early 18th century when some dry salters concentrated on ingredients for producing dyes and it was still current in the first part of the 20th century. In 1726, Daniel Defoe described a tradesman involved in the buying of indigo gulls shamok, logwood fustic, fustic, matter, and the like as both dry salter and salter. The dry salter's livery company tells us that some of the members who were salt traders were also dry salters and dealt in flax, hemp, logwood, potash, and chemical preparations. Being a dry salter might be combined with manufacturing, paint for example, or with trading as a chemist or druggist or ironmonger slash hardware merchant. Not much is known about this guy. This is all we know, is that he was a dry salter. And as we've seen, that doesn't give us a whole lot of information, because it can be very specific. Anyway, back to our lady. In an effort to break them apart forever, her father sent her to America to stay at Chatham Manor. We are assuming family friend association here. Unknown to her father, the young man had followed her to America. This wasn't an easy journey. If you could handle the seasickness and cramped quarters, your trip could last six weeks at least, and up to two to three months depending on wind, weather, or if they got lost, which kind of was a thing back then. That sort of thing. The young man would come to Chatham Manor and meet her in secret. They decided they were still very much in love and wanted to be with each other. I really hope they decided they were still in love after that journey. They were making plans to elope when a servant overheard their intentions. The servant reported the news to another guest. Not just any guest, but General George Washington himself. Just just imagine our first president being involved in this whole situation. I love it. Washington was determined to put a stop to the elopement. I assumed he was worried about his friend's daughter's reputation. Something along those lines. On the night the couple had planned to run away together and get married, the young woman climbed from her bedroom window to find not her lover, but instead George Washington awaiting her. Another version 
of the story has the young girl climbing down a rope or a rope ladder and falling into the arms of George Washington instead of her lover. I'm personally a fan of the visual of her falling off of a rope into George Washington's arms, but that's just me. Washington then had the English suitor arrested and the young girl shipped back to England. I didn't get a chance to find out why exactly he was being arrested. Like, what is his crime? One way or another, they stalled him enough to get her back to England. No one knows what happened to her lover. No one knows what happened to the guy. Honestly, he probably got stuck in America because it was probably too expensive to go home. But we, unfortunately, he's gone from history. No, that, that's the end of his story. While back in England, the girl was forced to marry another young man equal to her family's stature. And she was not happy about it, but went along with what she was, quote-unquote, supposed to do. She had ten kids, but it is rumored that she never smiled again after that evening. Unable to forget her true love, upon her deathbed in 1790, the woman vowed to return to the only place she was ever happy, Chatham Manor. And so she did. The first report of her ghostly appearance incurred on the very day of her passing, June 21st, 1790. Many visitors to Chatham Manor have reported seeing her ghost, a spectral apparition in a long white colonial gown emitting an eerie glow. She now appears every seventh year on June 21st between 12 p.m. and 12 a.m. to take the ghost walk. She walks the path along the river to the spot where she was expected to meet her lover on that faithful night. She was due to take the ghost walk in 2007. A group of paranormal investigators arrived to document the experience, but alas, she was not seen. Perhaps the lights and cameras were enough to keep her visual apparition at bay, or perhaps she finally found her true love in the afterlife and moved on. Some say she did show up that night, but investigators simply failed to take notice. I could not find if there was a paranormal investigation in 2014 or in 2021. So if anybody's heard anything about that, please let me know. I tried to dig for this. Another thing I really tried to find was this woman's name and could not find it. I don't know if it's just hidden secret or if it's something that's lost to time or it's all legend. Perhaps this is another cherry 
tree situation with Washington. Who knows? But I could not find anything on this. So, you know, let me know. And that's the end of our ghostly love story. I know this one is really short, but I just loved the idea of this spirit coming back every seven years, just hoping beyond hope that the man she loved more than anything would be there. And it kind of just broke my heart. Young Love Literally Destroyed by George Washington. It's a good story. I wish there was more documentation, but at the same time, it was just so good. I had to share it with you guys. After this, I'm going to go more into the history of the home and more haunted history. So, stay tuned. No expense was too much for William Fitzhugh, which probably had something to do with his dwindling financial state. Regardless of the highly successful plantation, I think that probably shows how he was out there spending his money like crazy. As a result, Fitzhugh sold Chatham Manor 35 years after moving in. There it sat for 10 years before being sold to Major Churchill Jones in 1806 for $20,000, which to me is amazing, which today is $408,163.27, which doesn't seem like a lot still. Like, it's a lot of money, but if you look at how much land and the house, only a half a million? Doesn't seem like a lot. But again, I live in Colorado, so our housing prices are insane. I don't know. The house would see a total of 15 owners over the many years of its existence. It remained in the Jones family for 66 years. In 1975, the final proprietor of Chatham Manor, John Lee Pratt, sold it to the National Park Service. Today, the plantation is part of Fredericksburg and a Spotsylvania National Military Park and open to public, the public daily for daytime visitation. There's nothing on the National Park Service website about the haunting, so I don't think they like to talk about it much. They are a historical site, not a haunted one. Just the vibe I got from everything I read and watched about them. Chatham Manor stood alongside the banks of the Rappahannock River opposite the city of Fredericksburg, for now around 250 years. Chatham's history reflects the history of the American South. 
people living and working at Chatham experienced the Young Nation's experiment in democracy, along with the persistent defense of slavery, which nearly, nearly destroyed that democracy. Ah, the Civil War. War damaged Chatham only for the only for the grounds to be given new life in the 1900s. Chatham's Manor would have never achieved its greatness without slave labor. Most slaves lived in outbuildings on the plantation. Most of these, I believe, don't exist. I think everything is gone when it comes to the slave homes now. Don't quote me 100%, but I feel like Everything I read, they don't, they've been taken out. Some of the slaves lived in the kitchen and laundry, detached brick buildings that still stand, but the outbuildings don't. This I found fascinating. In 1805, slaves on the plantation rebelled overpowering their overseer and several others. These are the stories we need. (laughs) During the rebellion, the overseer and four other people were overpowered and whipped. It took an armed posse to put down the rebellion and punish those involved. In total, one man, a slave named Abraham, was unfortunately executed. Two died while escaping, and two were deported. Ironically, a later owner of Chatham tried to emancipate her slaves in 1858 before the Civil War started, but was overruled by the Virginia Supreme Court. Institutionalized slavery at its most horrible. Something I thought was very interesting with, in regards to hauntings, with all of the history of enslaved people on the plantation and obvious violence and the rebellion, there doesn't seem to be any hauntings from the slaves that I could find. I kept digging. You hear about the Lady in White over and over and over and the Civil War. But slave hauntings? No. So I hope I hope they found peace in the afterlife. At the time of the Civil War, Chatham was owned by Confederate sympathizers Betty and J. Horace Lacey. The Laceys resided at Chatham in the winter and lived in their other home, Elwood, in the summer. And apparently Elwood is also haunted. At the outbreak of war, J. Horace Lacey volunteered to serve in the Confederate Army. Betty, meanwhile, packed up the house and left Chatham empty which allowed it to be occupied by the U.S. Army and used as a headquarters during the Battle of Fredericksburg. 
I don't know why, but the idea of the North, the U.S. Army coming in and taking over a plantation that was owned by Southern sympathizers, it, it makes me happy. I find it ironic. The Battle of Fredericksburg was fought December 11th through the 15th, 1862, in and around Fredericksburg, Virginia, in the Eastern Theater of the American Civil War. The combat between the Union Army and the Potomac Commander Major General Ambrose E. Burnside and Confederate Army Northern Virginia I can't say Virginia. Uh, it's so hard. From Virginia, General Robert E. Lee included futile frontal attacks by the Union Army on December 13th against entrenched Confederate defenders along the sunken wall at the heights behind the city. It is remembered as one of the most one-sided battles of the war, with Union casualties more than twice as heavy as those suffered by the Confederates. A visitor to the battlefield described the battle to U.S. President Abraham Lincoln as a butchery. It's insane. The Union Army suffered one of the bloodiest defeats during this time. Total Union casualties were 12,600 killed, wounded, or missing in action. Most fell in the effort to take the stone wall and the sunken road. Remember, that's the little bit higher ground where the Confederates were entrenched. Confederate losses were 30, I'm sorry, 5,300. That's still a lot of people. It is reported that 130 soldiers died at Chatham. The bodies were buried on the grounds until being excavated and moved to Fredericksburg's National Cemetery. Chatham Manor was only a five-minute drive, or 31 minutes walking, according to Google. So, it's incredibly close. That's why it was apparently used as a hospital during this time. They got the guys out from the battlefield, got them as to the, over to the hospital. And again, a lot of them died. Again, 12,000 got it. It's amazing. It's, it's unfathomable. It really is. During the battle, Chatham's stately rooms were transformed into a field hospital. Clara Burton, Mary Walker, and Walt Whitman served in the hospital at Chatham, caring for the sick and wounded soldiers. Clara Burton, you might have heard that name, she becomes famous and because she's the founder of the Red Cross. And Dr. Mary Walker 
was the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor for service during the Civil War. Walt Whitman is a famous poet. So everybody's in this house. Walt Whitman came to Chatham in 1862 searching for his wounded brother. Greatly affected by the suffering he saw there, where every room was crowded with wounded soldiers, the poet dedicated himself to nursing the wounded and dying for the rest of the war. Whitman later wrote of his time at Chatham, outdoors at the foot of a tree within 10 yards of the front of the house, I noticed a heap of amputated feet, legs, arms, hands, etc. about a load for a one-horse cart. I could probably do an entire series on Civil War medical techniques. Basically, just know any Civil War story that has ghost stories gonna be Ugh. This, the, the line I was always taught is the guys suffered almost as much in the hospitals as they did on the battlefield. And a septic wasn't a thing. Any kind of pain relieving was not a thing. It's horrific. And why we have hauntings. Whitman's experience of the horrible effects of the war is most poignant in his excerpt from his 1861 poem, The Wound Dresser. I dress a wound on the side, deep, deep, but a day or two more for see the frame all wasted and sinking and the yellow-blue countenance see. I dress the perforated shoulder, the foot with a bullet wound, cleanse the one with the gnawing and putrid gangrene, so sickening, so offensive, while the attendant stands behind beside me, holding the tray and pail. I am faithful. I do not give out. The fractured thigh, the knee, the wounded the wound in the abdomen. These and more I dress with impassive hand, yet deep in my breast a fire, a burning flame. So the house was literally soaked in blood. And some reports say riddled with holes. Again, the battle was close, but not that close. But still, it was a huge battle. Stray bullets are a thing. Ghostly soldiers have been seen on the grounds, sometimes appearing wounded, while others seem perfectly fine, just standing there in uniform. Disembodied voices, screams, and yells have been reported along with phantom gunfire. Visitors have also reported cold spots as well as a few human-shaped shadows moving on their own accord. As you can imagine, 
There have been several reports of people hearing gunfire, voicing voices giving commands, and visions of soldiers wandering amongst headstones. Some claim to even hear ghosts whispering in the nearby cemetery. The whole area is so affected. Not just Chatham, but this entire location. It's, it's amazing. After the Civil War, the Lacys returned to Chatham, but could not maintain their lavish lifestyle as their wealth had been tied to the enslaved people who had claimed their freedom. Shortly after returning, they sold the house and 1,300 acres. The next eight owners likewise had difficulty keeping up the house and grounds. Chatham's forces fortunes changed in 1920 when Helen and Daniel DeVore purchased the property. The DeVores, in the spirit of colonial revitalism, Juan and Chatham to represent historic magistry. In the convening years of the divorce transformation of Chatham from former slave plantation to a showy country retreat. The look of Chatham today resembles the houses after the restoration in the 1920s. Losing much of its glory. Probably for the best, considering it was all because of slaves. Thank you to everyone out there listening today. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We continue the Till Death Do We Part episodes next week and for the rest of the month. Now, I know this one was short and the Don Cesar one was sweet. I promise you, next week, it gets dark. And the one after that, it's a little bit more Victorian murder mystery with a touch of ghostly hauntings. But such a good story, I have to tell you. I'm very excited. Uh, Anyways, I promise it gets spookier. If you have a ghost story to share with me, email me at myhauntedlifepodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in more pictures, info, and all of my sources, make sure to check out the website, myhauntedlifepodcast.com. We have all the social media out there. I always ask everybody, though, if you like the show, please tell your friends and family. Word of mouth is the best way to get this out. I always love hearing people who start listening to the show because a certain friend has told them about it. Ironically enough, usually Kaylin. Love you. Anyways. But yes, share it. Also, if you would like to help support the show even more, check out the Patreon, and you can join 
for as little as $2 a month. I am very slowly getting the Patreon exclusive stories back up, but they're coming. I swear. And that's it for this show. I'll see you all next week on my Haunted Life podcast. And until then, stay haunted.